Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. I know the adage goes that April showers bring May flowers, but based on images from across the Northern Hemisphere, from snowdrops in Vermont, cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C., and wildflowers in California, as well as daffodils peeking out in parts of Colorado between snowstorms, April has plenty of her own bloom and the growing season is underway. To inspire your designs for the season ahead, this week we're in conversation with Benjamin Vogt of Monarch Gardens. He is a fierce advocate on behalf of our gardens being critically important links in our world's broken and fragmented ecological chains. You may remember my 2018 conversation with Benjamin about his first book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future. Well, that ethical manifesto now has an instruction manual in Benjamin's second book, Prairie Up an introduction to natural garden design. It might be just the reference you need to get your growing season off to a great start. Benjamin is here this week to share more. Benjamin, I'm so pleased to welcome you back to Cultivating Place. Thank you so much. I just love talking with you. So so thank you for having me back again. Well, I am a big fan of your work and I am a big fan of this new book, Prairie Up, An Introduction to Natural Garden Design. And no matter where you garden, you are going to find really interesting and helpful information in this book. But before we get there, I've just introduced you, Benjamin is there anything you would like to add to that as to how you introduce yourself or maybe even the importance for you personally of plants and gardens in our world? Oh, those are two very loaded questions. Mm-hmm. I, you know, with, whenever I introduce myself, it's just always, I'm, hi, I'm Benjamin Vogt. Um, I am a native plant garden designer. I do prairie inspired garden design in, in, in sun and in shade. So I'm really into shade, designing shade meadows. Um, I am a speaker. I'm an author. I am definitely an activist, which can create complications, especially in the horticultural world. Um, but I think it can create complications in any world, really. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, in a time of mass extinction and climate change, I believe so passionately in, in the power of gardens to reconnect us to the natural world around us and, and awaken in us a, a spirit of um, camaraderie uh, with, with wildlife and native plants and just awaken us to the issues that we need to be aware of so that we can have a healthier planet. Uh, you know, yeah, addressing mass extinction, climate change, which, which we are the cause of and which we can so easily be the fix of. Yeah, we can certainly go a long way to reconnecting these spaces um, that our gardens hopefully want to represent. So who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a man for whom this would be an activism that you are, you know, and I want to use the word like relentless, but what I mean by that is you are, you are unflagging in your hope for our gardening accountability in our world. Take us back. Where were you born and raised and and where were the crucial moments along the way that grew you into where you are now? 
Benjamin? It's so hard to pick those crucial moments because I feel like it's just, it's a lot of luck and it's a lot, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I was born in Oklahoma, so I spent my first 10 years living in Western Oklahoma and we were, we were not really outdoorsy people um, besides the farming that my dad did, uh, especially during June was when uh, harvest was for winter red wheat and he built homes outside. So that was primarily my experience with being outdoors. But then when I was 10, we moved to Minnesota. And when, I, when we moved to Minnesota, the world really totally changed for me. I mean, it was a psychological and emotional shock that in many ways still scars me because you know, anytime you have to uproot and, you, and, and you're 10 years old, it's it, it can be a really uh, difficult experience to go through. Um, everything was strange and different, but, 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 but the nature outside was, this is not a knock on Oklahoma because Oklahoma is incredible, uh, incredible diversity of ecosystems and so many beautiful places to see. But when I went to Minnesota, I mean, it just felt like nature was in your face. You had trees and lakes all around you. The seasons were so incredibly blunt and strong and powerful. I remember one of my first experiences at the new house we moved into temporarily and there was a grove of trees down the street and I was just out there in the fall, damp, musky, um, in the shade of those towering pine trees and oak trees and and uh, above me, I heard geese flying low overhead and you know they're calling to each other. But more importantly, you could hear their wings flapping against the wind. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life. I think that was the first moment. But as I grew up and grew older and we, we, we established our, our family up there, um, my mom really got into gardening. So I would take nursery trips with her and, and putts around outside with her. So that that had to be probably the first direct um, introduction to horticulture and gardening that I had. Yeah. And take us further along. Where on your journey did you make a connection between our gardens and mass extinction or our gardens and mass regeneration? And I think the issue of, of um, sort of this idea of human privilege and human supremacy mm -hmm. and, and the colonization that we've pretty much force on on ecosystems and still peoples um, that are around us. And that that happened for me, um, maybe not so much doing my master's program at Ohio State, but definitely in my PhD program here at the University of Nebraska, uh, where I was exposed to so much um, ecological criticism, ecological literature. I took a Native American literature class with a wonderful professor who just really, really helped me I mean, not directly, but I connected these dots on my own between what I was reading about about nature um, from all these, you know, all all the big names in the world of of nature writing, and I was connecting the dots with what I was reading about, um, well, you know, pretty much genocide, mm -hmm. right? And and I mean, that was geared towards humans, but then I started thinking, well, there's all these other peoples. It's not just human peoples. There are plant peoples and animal peoples and rocks and, and river peoples. And and all of these, all of these are are are, are you know, just pretty much being destroyed. And it's it, it's it's all related. You think about uh you think about feminism and sexism, um, you think about racism, these are all coming from the same root. So so when I'm when I'm in the garden, I'm thinking about all this really, I guess, well, complex stuff and how it how it interrelates, how it feeds one mm -hmm. another. Yeah. And again, you know, how, I mean, I'm thinking back now uh, on my own side, Benjamin, to my conversations with people like Rowan White and Robin Wall Kimmerer and Jamaica Kincaid and Ross Gay and Camille Dungy. And, and I think you're right. I think there is a very 
um, distinct and related root to all of these isms that that are challenges and obstacles in the way of our best selves and our best lives, and that we can meet all of those challenges and obstacles and failures in the past in our gardens, in the plants that are available, in the way we garden, in the chemicals that are used. But as you said right in the very beginning, there is also the capacity for undoing some of those, of unlearning them and relearning a better way. So you 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 broach this in large part in in your first book, A New Garden Ethic. And you are taking us on this next step in Prairie Up. I mean, that's how I would see it, is that in a new garden ethic, you really sometimes confrontationally put out there this idea that our our gardens are a part of a much bigger problem and a part of some very persistent and pernicious smaller problems. But that if we redo it, if we develop a new ethic, we stand a chance of being part of the solutions. And so from that philosophical foundation, you move us into Prairie Up. Is that a fair, is that a fair trajectory? Absolutely. I mean, I think you could also fairly say I totally switch gears because uh, as you're hinting at right here, a new garden ethic is a very confrontational, very philosophical, a very deep book. I've had more than one person tell me that they have to put it down um, after reading part of a chapter or, chapter or one chapter just because they have to sit there and, and absorb it and process mm -hmm. it, right? And then sometimes it is heavy hitting. And then when I was writing Prairie Up, I was like, okay, everybody has the why. We really need the how. And the biggest how, the loudest um, call I hear from, from, from people is, is a group of people who are new to mm. this um, design mm. aesthetic, new, new, new to thinking this way. So I was really passionate about making this a very approachable, um, very down to earth. Um, I wouldn't say overly simple, but it, yeah, Prairie Up is how, okay, you know the why, now we're going to do it, we're going to put it in action, and we're just going to try. Right. And and so it's kind of the toolbox that goes with the why, but it, it also keeps broadening and making relevant the why, uh, which is what, part of what I so appreciated about it. And I think you're right, we have as we know out there in, in the world and in the listenership here as well, a whole new demographic of people are there post-pandemic and we want to keep them there. And we wa also want to, I think it's fair to say for both you and me, we want to make sure they don't learn any of the mistakes that we learned in a horticultural world of the past. We, we want to bring them in with the knowledge uh, that we have now and the the really positive tools we have now. Yes, and and the influence of that horticultural past is still very, very mm -hmm. much the horticultural present, as you know, as you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, so it 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 is it is it's a challenge on so many levels, professionally and, and personally, when I'm speaking with people. But we we will get there. And I think when we're looking or looking at the at the pandemic, you know, I. I, I don't know what it is, but it does feel like something has changed in the last few years where people want to be more aware of uh, of their place and, and the health of mm -hmm. their place and, and the health of that place as it relates to their family and stewardship of their family and their friends and their community. And that's, that's yes, that's exactly what we're going yeah. for. You know, it was a, a horrific confluence of information flowing at us at a rapid rate that made it impossible to ignore, right? We had the global pandemic. We had this 
astounding number of people dying around the globe all at the same time. At the same time, we're getting updates regularly on the biodiversity loss, the, you know, like... 70% numbers of, of diversity loss, of the insect apocalypse, the loss of 3 billion birds in the U.S. alone. And then we are in the social justice chaos, which is well needed, um, all coming together that we can't avoid any of them at that moment. And and there was this, you know, if we were lucky, we had some space outside, whether it was on a porch or a windowsill or a little back garden or a big front yard that we could go to and find a little solace and also feel like we were making something of a difference because we don't want to give up. We we want to feel like we have some agency to make things better. Even if it's tiny agency, it all aggregates into bigger. Yeah, and this this is the power of gardens that I see very clearly. That it, it is it is an empowering act. Even if you're just putting a couple mm. of plants in a pot on your deck, you are you are taking control. You are connecting, and you are saying, "I I have a mm. voice," and also the wildlife around me has a voice. And together, we make a very very powerful chorus that we can't that people can't ignore anymore. Yeah. So, you know, you and I doing the work that we do we can often feel like we're speaking to a chorus or we are in an echo chamber of other gardeners who feel this way. And there are all of these sl slowly congregating um, efforts around around the country and around the globe. There's the, you know, Doug Tallamy's homegrown national park. There's the, the Xerces Society, Bee City USA and Bee Campus USA. There's there's wildscaping and there's rewilding and there's whatever it is. Like there is, there are a lot of movements now all moving toward somewhat of the same ideal and goal. And yet, and yet you can take a picture of your front yard prairie garden in suburban Nebraska. I can take one of my front little dry garden habitat in Northern California and look down my street, Benjamin. And even after, you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for the last 20 years, you've been doing it for however many years. What is it that keeps this message from landing in even more people and gearing them into action? Like, is it just inertia? Is it complacency? What is it? If I knew the answer to that, right. <laughs> <laughs> I would go buy a lottery ticket right, right now. I would just hang up and go, you know, um, I, it, it has to be a lot of factors. Uh, I mean, I know that I have neighbors that are upset with me and I, yeah. I, I just can't care. I, I can't move the needle. Um, you know, it takes 20 exposures to a new way of thinking before somebody even begins to rethink their own very well-honed, uh, very, very practiced perspective that that defines them and mm -hmm. that they don't want to move away from. Um, but 
you know, I think about suburbia, I think about how easy lawns are to maintain. We grew up learning how to maintain them. Our parents mm -hmm. made us go outside to mow instead of watching mm -hmm. video games or whatever. Um, so, so it's a known quantity. We fertilize four times a year when the radio ads tell us to. We turn on the automatic sprinklers and we just let them fly and we mow once a week. And we, I, you know, I, I don't know. I get this feeling that when people look up my front yard, they think, wow, that's a lot of work. You know, um, I, I don't I don't have the knowledge to be able to do that. I don't have the time to do that. I've got three kids. I've got a full time job. My spouse has a full time job. My 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 parents are in the hospital. I don't know, whatever. But this is so much less work. I am not out there mowing every week. I'm not watering. I'm just putzing and having the time of my life watching butterflies and birds come down. Um, but yeah, I think I think there are a lot of cultural and social issues that I can't even begin to fully quantify. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Benjamin Vogt is one of our great champions of beautiful ecological gardens that contribute more than they take from the earth and ecosystems around them. His newest book, Prairie Up, is an inspiring toolkit, as it were, for natural garden design wherever you may live. We'll be back for more with Benjamin after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. The Conservancy's famed and nationwide Open Days scheme is up and running in April, and one of the initiatives within Open Days that I love is the nibbled leaf designation. This is the organic gardening initiative within the Garden Conservancy's Open Days program. Every year, 200 to 300 private gardens around the country participate in Open Days, and more than a third of these identify as nibbled leaf gardens. Nibbled leaf gardeners, or nibblers for short, garden with nature in mind, avoiding pesticides, choosing natives, and gardening with the climate in mind. Nibbled leaf was developed in partnership with the Better Earth Foundation. And if you ask me, I'd like to see every garden and every open garden modeling these same principles and values of the nibblers. How about you? It is certainly at the heart of what Benjamin Vogt and his monarch gardens hold dear. And I think it's a worthwhile goal for us all. Happy April, nibblers. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Benjamin Vogt, the Nebraska-based human behind the natural garden design and advocacy known as Monarch Gardens. Benjamin's newest book is Prairie Up, an introduction to natural garden design, and he's here with us this week to share more. Even if we sometimes feel like we are speaking to the choir, remember 
The choir needs support. And we just can't say these things enough, often enough to enough people to share that it's not work. It's great joy. And it's not um, it's not a task that takes away from raising our children. It actually helps to raise our children and give us a sense of well-being. So we just gotta keep we just gotta keep having these conversations, right? Yes. And, and don't, and if you want, if you want more hope, just think about all the, all the great social movements that we've had in the history of our country and other countries. It's because of a very, very small minority. It's something like one or 2%. That's, that's all the critical mass you need to create a lasting change that is, you know, countrywide, global wide. And we're getting there and we're getting there in part through some of your work. So let's dive into Prairie Up. One thing is I love that title, Benjamin. (laughs) <laughs> I I think I sort of, if I remember correctly, I had to fight my press a little bit on that. They weren't totally excited about that. But I said, this is something I've been saying for years with everybody who follows me on social yeah. media when I'm giving lectures. I say prairie up. Yeah. You know? yeah. Okay. So give us the germination story for this book in the form that it actually is now out there and available for people to download, to buy, to read, to share. The germination story would, I mean, I don't know how far, I don't know how detailed you want me to get. I mean, there was somebody at the University of Illinois Press who I happened to go to grad school with. So I was very lucky. And they contacted me and said, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with your work. Have you ever thought about writing a book on this topic? And I said, yeah, actually I have. And it was kind of simple because I could just take all of my articles, all of my blog posts, all of my social media mm-hmm. posts, and I sort of just, you know, I made a book yeah. out of them. Yeah, that's great. So let's then go to the table of contents. And I want you to share a little bit from bringing the prairie home. One of the things I love is that the word prairie might conjure for people a very limited space in the middle of North America. Um, Mm -hmm. But you do a brilliant job of expanding that out into ecosystems that will be familiar to all of us, no matter where we live. I mean, when I first saw the representation of the Carrizo Plain, a beautiful wildflower and grassland in California that I have pilgrimaged to. Is that the right word? I have made pilgrimages to um, whenever possible. I was like, that is the way to go right there. Good job, Benjamin. (laughs) Well, I knew uh, for personal experience that people were going to say, is this book applicable to me? Your press is from Illinois. You're speaking from Nebraska. I live in California. I live in Maine. I live in Florida. Is this going to be applicable? And people still ask that uh, of me at least once a day. So yeah, I wanted to show that prairie, meadow, savanna, these are all interchangeable words. We have these ecosystems all around the country or very recently did and they're, and they're struggling to come back. They want to come back. The wildlife that use them want to come back. They're still there. They just need the habitat. So yes, we prairie up is very, in my mind, very inclusive. Yeah. yeah. And so you have a very solid and uh, deep body of work out there. When you were approaching this, what basic knowledge and skills did you want to make sure to pass on to the people who would pick this up? I worked very hard on trying to picture who my ideal reader would be or who 
I don't know if ideal is the right word, but expected, somewhere in between expected and ideal. Um, they were somebody who was really interested in native plant uh, landscape supporting wildlife. They have very little experience it. Maybe they've dabbled a little bit, some plants died. They feel like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. What was I thinking? But they still have that passion. They're still doing all this reading and research. So I just, I wanted to, to, to write a book that spoke so simply and just hit on some core ideas um, to, to empower people and say, yeah, in some ways doing a native plant landscape is, is more work than a traditional garden. It's, it's more work than managing a lawn, but that's just because we're so unfamiliar with it personally and even um, culturally and, and mm -hmm. socially. Um, you know, this, this idea of having plants in layers and that there's this um, aspect of, of succession to the garden from week to week, month to month, season to season, even year to year and decade to decade, you know, to think like that when you're choosing plants and placing plants, it can almost feel overwhelming. Like, just like thinking about climate change and how this is something that, you know, we want to address now, even if the major, major, major effects aren't for 10, 20 or 30 years. So um, I just wanted to, to, to help people find the plants that are local to them, to think locally, to mm -hmm. think hyper-locally, not just in your ecoregion or your street, but, you know, the microclimates around your house, because every garden is incredibly different, even just from somebody across the street. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that is, that is your central core tenet right there, is think locally, think hyper-locally. And I think it also one the one of the other cores that you go through again and again and again is exactly what you introduced yourself as, like being observant, paying attention. Yes, uh, let the plants guide the design and the management. I think you know. I think most of the time, what well, feels like to me most of the time when we're working in gardens or designing garden, it's about dictating to the space. Mm -hmm. And if a plant you really like dies in the place that it's in, you're going to go buy that same mm -hmm. exact plant again and put it in the same exact place. And that's maybe not what the plant or the soil or the climate is is, is trying to tell you, but you're just not listening because you're like, this is what I want. Um I, I know this through personal experience, <laughs> uh, lots of trial and error throughout my life and just finally getting to a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be the plant whisperer. I'm going to sit back. I, I've done some research. I understand what's native to me, uh, how plants work together, interlock together in layers and succession throughout the seasons and years. And I am going to be patient for three, four years. And I'm going to see uh, what happens because I know that the plants have a wisdom that is is much broader and deeper than mine. Yeah. And so take us on, take us on the next steps. I mean, in the introduction, bringing the prairie home, you, you make this case for these different kinds of, but very related grassland ecosystems from the Edwards Plateau in Texas to, you know, the grasslands of Louisiana to the Palouse Prairie up in uh, Oregon and Idaho. And like I said, California, where, where did you go from there? You, you, you first made it universal and relevant to almost anywhere you could stand in Northern North America for sure. And then what were your next steps to, to lead people on not just how to, not just what to do, but how to think in order to then know what to do? <laughs> 
that's a loaded question as well. Uh, I, I ask people, I think I started out right away in chapter two discussing ecoregions. Mm -hmm. um, so there are several different uh, ecoregion ma uh, maps um, that the U.S. provides. And there, there's four different levels, one, two, three, four. One is very broad, basic um, regions in the United States. I think there's like 30 or 50 of those. Um, I prefer level three, which has about 900 different ecoregions mm -hmm. on the map. Once you start to research your ecoregion, you start to understand the climate, the, the soils, the hydrology. Um, you, 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 you come to know the plants. Um, and that's, that's basically your starting point. And then, and then you can start um, researching, okay, what's, what's native to ecoregion X? What's native to my zip code? Um, and, 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 then, and then you start to learn about each one of the individual plants and do they grow well together? Are they, um, did they evolve in the same locations or the same soils and drainage and all that and sunlight? Because if they did, they're probably going to work well together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you are building your native plant list. And, and, and then you have to think, okay, what, what exactly are, are, are my site conditions? Which, which plants are actually going to work there? Um, because it's not as simple as going to a nursery and trusting a plant tag, which can never, ever provide anywhere near enough information, especially right. information that's relevant to you and your site. So you, you, you have to sit there and see, really think, okay, how does this plant spread? Is it, if I have a hundred square feet, square foot garden, I'm not going to put um, an aggressive species in there because even if it's native, it's going to totally take over uh, to the detriment of all the other species that I want to thrive in there and that I want to support um, uh, all kinds of other uh, wildlife. So there, there is really, Yes, it can. Okay, see, it's starting to sound like it's a lot of hard work because you're thinking about plant habits. Um, how long do the plants live? We have perennials that live only a couple of years. Those are early succession species. We have perennials that will live 10, 20, 30 years. So think, tr just, just trying to find the information and all this stuff can feel very mm -hmm, overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But it is also going to make you so incredibly confident. And I use the word empowered a lot, but it, it's really applicable here. You are going to know so much before you ever put your hand in the soil. And it's going to make the garden so much more successful, not just as an ecosystem, um, but also aesthetically. So a space that is pleasing both, both to you and the wildlife that come, but that is hopefully more pleasing uh, to neighbors as hopefully you sort of create a, create a middle ground to get them, get them on board. You know, don't just plant a bunch of crazy aggressive things that get 10 feet right, tall, right? right? You want to choose species that are, you know, that are going to work together. They're going to work on the site. There are, they aren't going to self-sow like crazy. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to it. And one of the things I like about this is, um, and I think you, you just used a word that, that made me remember this is you said that's a lot of hard work, but in fact, what it is, is it's the hard work of like a love affair or a, an ongoing relationship with your, your children or a good friend or a family member. Like this is about relationship. So you are getting to know where you are. You're getting to know who else lives there, these plants. And then you are starting to think in an empathetic way about how and why they grow there in the way that they do this. Because that teaches you about these plants and these plant communities. So then, you know, and and I I love you have this beautiful, and I think this is in chapter two, beautiful section where you are showing us a lot of very urban gardens in Denver, in Chicago, on the High Line in New York, um, 
there was another one as well, that are using all of this information about where plants grow, how they grow, how they grow together. And then they you're interpreting that uh, in order to choose the best palette of succession and layering for what is a very different you know, actual situation, you know, in a small border on the high line, um, because you know enough about these, these plants that you can kind of, you can work with their needs and fit them into this unlikely space. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's this very nurturing relationship. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the nursery, it's a first date. Yeah. And you're sort of like, you're, <laughs> you're so true. You're a little, you're a little nervous. You're not exactly sure what you're doing. You know, you awkwardly touch a plant. You know, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, you, 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 you start to date and you start to get to know one another and you start to think, oh, wow, that's too much water. That's not enough water. Oh, oh, look at those caterpillars on you. Oh, so, 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 oh, that's, that's really cool. That kind of relationship you have. And, oh, you're going to move over there now. Oh, that's totally cool. Thank you for, thank you for teaching me right. that, what, what you like and what works well for you. I, I want to help you and because I want you to help me as well, but we're in this together yeah. and. Yeah. And it's a different mindset, but it's such a, it is such a fun one. And I, like every gardener out there who's had that, you know, those first three or four seasons where you like wake up at five o'clock and you get out there because you want to see who's doing what <laughs> and, and how they look and, um, and is it coming together nicely? Um, that like infatuation phase with the garden is it pretty much comes back every spring, doesn't it? Uh, for me, it comes back in the fall. I much prefer fall. Okay. But yes, yes. Okay. For most people, it comes back in the spring. <laughs> and maybe maybe it's added in every season, actually, because we just happen to be in spring when we're talking. And so that's how I'm feeling now. But I agree. Like there are those joys in summer and winter and fall as well. So you move from the learning into the planning and stalling and managing. And it's interesting because you put planning, installing and managing as topics that come before designing the garden. Can you talk about these two <laughs> sections and why that sort of inverse um, thinking? Yeah, because be, w when you are researching plants, I mean, plants plants guide the management. Um, I'm not saying design is secondary, but you know, again, depending on your space, depending on what you need plants to do in the site, because plants are, are useful, they're not just pretty things to look at. They can slow water. They can help water absorb. Mm -hmm. They can shade a building and, and clean the air and cool the air and all this good stuff. So the design comes from the plants that you've chosen. If you if you design the landscape before you choose the plants, before you understand the plants that you're using, I mean, that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how else to say it because the plants are going to are are going to dictate where they're going to be, as as well as just you know how how large the masses are going to be, how how large the drifts are being, and just and just just you know the number of each plant species that you're going to use. So, um, if you have a really weedy backyard and you have super uh, aggressive exotic weed species that you have tried for years to knock back with every nuclear option you can think of, and it's just not working. Uh, then, then the goal here is to choose really aggressive native species that you can hope sort of will beat back the uh, invasive exotic species, or at least, or at least keep them in check. So, so your management is going to be guided by the behavior of the plant species that you're using, and not just individual plant species, mm -hmm. but how they lock together all the different layers. And so, okay, I'm going to, that, that actually leads us beautifully to some of the things you are asking us to think about 
as we are planning. So when you are in the planning phase, what are the most important things that you want? Like, where do you have people start? Walk them through that. All right. We should just pretend we're at a site consult right now, right? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so I will I will ask people, you know, how, well, I guess first, what do you envision the space looking like in, in, in your perfect mm -hmm. world? Let's say money, money is no object. Time doesn't matter. What is the space going to look like? How are you going to use it? Okay. Yeah. And then I'll say, well, what difficulties have you been having on this site? Um, are you having weed issues? Are you having drainage issues? Are there privacy issues? I don't know. There's so many. Just what what things have been problematic for you that keep you up at night and make you feel frustrated? And we'll think about how we can use plants and plant communities to address those issues. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Benjamin Vogt is a champion of beautiful ecological gardens. His newest book, Prairie Up, is an inspiring toolkit for natural garden design wherever you may live. We'll be back for more with Benjamin after a quick break. Hey, it's Jennifer. So some of you might remember that in February of 2021, I spoke about a garden culture of care and cultivating place as the inaugural Ruth Boren lecturer for the Southern California Horticultural Society. It was a great honor to speak to that esteemed group of plants people. And I was delighted to hear recently that this year's Ruth Boren Lecture will feature a plantsman so many of us admire, coming to us from a garden we admire, and which has so often led the way in our horticultural world. On April 28th, SoCal Hort, as this group is affectionately known, is excited to welcome Fergus Garrett, head gardener of Great Dixter in the United Kingdom. He'll be speaking in his lecture about biodiversity and integrating natives into all gardens. You should be able to find all the information at SoCalHort.org and well-chosen SoCal Hort. I'm looking forward to listening in. It's a wonderful tribute to the great gardener Ruth Boren was. Her legacy lives on. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Benjamin Vogt, the Nebraska-based human behind the natural garden design and advocacy known as Monarch Gardens. Benjamin's newest book is Prairie Up, an introduction to natural garden design. As we come back to our conversation, Benjamin is taking us on his own garden design process once he has established his first most expansive site of appropriate plant list for any design job. So I, I start out with a huge plant list of like 50 species. I know I'm only going to use like 15 or 20. 
uh, by most of the projects I'm using because they're relatively small, like urban or suburban front yards. So I, I'm creating these lists of, okay, how aggressive is this species? When does it bloom? Um, when does it begin to go dormant? Uh, is it a perennial? Is it a long-lived perennial? Is it an annual? Is it early succession species? Uh, I know some of these terms are going to make people feel crazy, but that's why you got to get the book. Uh, so I'm making all these all these tables, and I'm categorizing all the all of my 50 plant species, and then I'm 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 winnowing it down, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I do not need five species that are doing the same thing in this spot. I can cut one of them out. Uh, one of them is definitely going to be too aggressive, either by root runners or seeding. That that's not going to work here. Um, well, this one's going to get too tall. That's not going to work here. So it's basically a process of almost like taking a a block of marble and chipping away at mm -hmm. it until the the sculpture is 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 re re revealed on the inside. Even though I'm hesitant to call gardens art, um, I know a lot of us out there think of gardens as art, and so, some ways they are. Um, in in the, many the ways, the art is manifest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I feel like the art is. I feel like the the. I feel like art is this idea, this this human construct that we're forcing on the plants, and I want the plants and the wildlife that are coming to them. Um, I I want them to be the art. I want the art to be about the ecology and not so much the aesthetics, even though the aesthetics are obviously important for lots of reasons. Well, but And the more we do this, the more our aesthetic shift. That's what I, uh, that's what I have found certainly that, um, and it kind of brings back that lovely adage that gardening is the slowest of the performing arts. And, you know, that, that description you gave of, oh, you moved over there. That's nice. Like, uh, good to know. Like you look really happy there. And um, that play over time is what is so artistic and beautiful about it. This is why sometimes this is going to sound crazy coming from a designer, but I sometimes feel like, gosh, does it really matter where I put the plants when I'm laying out a garden? You know, I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, I, we do a lot of front yard conversions. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I am highly attuned to to the aesthetic issues that we're going to have and the possible confrontations we're going to have with neighbors. So I'm thinking obviously shorter species, more behaved species, but I'm thinking about repetition of masses and drifts. You know, we'll, we'll use a Coreopsis verticillata in a group of three or five, and I want to repeat that grouping three or four times across the entire landscape because that repetition shows intentionality to humans who might otherwise just assume you vomited out a bag of prairie seed. <laughs> um, but, but it also creates this larger beacon for pollinators flowing, flying overhead. That instead of just seeing one lone specimen of Coreopsis, they see, oh, a lot of them. Wow, I can just hang out there all day long and get exactly what I want. I don't have to go looking anywhere else. It's a huge beacon. You bring up a couple of points, especially in this idea of a front yard lawn conversion and what you might expect and what you're, I think, tapping into is the challenges that many native plant gardeners have have faced and or fallen into um, and from which we know we can we can plant our way out. One of those refers back or or gets to a point you just made about or that you made about a couple of plants is aggressiveness is that our our native plants, they have survived and adapted and evolved because they are survivors and they are survivors because they have several, generally several adaptations that allow them to thrive no matter how hard the conditions seem to get, whether it's too much water, not enough water, not enough light, not enough fertility, whatever it might be, they are, they are strong. And so sometimes 
especially those that are easy to propagate and easy to uh, get started in a garden, sometimes get a little out of hand and get a little aggressive. And those thugs can give everybody else a bad name. And those gardens that have been planted with thugs that then aren't cared for because no one was trained how to care for them, um, they they make other gardeners or neighbors go, that is just a weedy mess over there. What the heck? That's exactly right. And this is where the plant research comes in. You know, yeah. I, 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 I see on Facebook, you know, there's there's gardeners asking all the time, can anybody suggest some easy native plants? And then there comes that list of easy native plants that I know are going to be aggressive and take over and it's going to look like a weedy mess in three yeah. years. Um, the reason they're easy is because, yeah, they're, I mean, a lot of these plants evolved in very dynamic, uh, diverse thick uh, wild landscapes where there was a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So in some ways they were kept more in check. So part of this natural garden design aesthetic or practice is, is to understand how, how to keep some of these plants in mm -hmm. check. I think, okay, so there's, there's a species we have here called stiff goldenrod is the common name. I won't, I won't belabor the Latin. I know that drives people nuts, but anyways, the common name is stiff goldenrod and you see it out in a prairie uh, where lots of competition, where it's not getting pampered and it's two feet tall. You bring it into a home garden, the thing shoots up four feet tall, flops over on the sidewalk and bangs into people's uh, torsos as they walk on their dogs by on the sidewalk. That's not good. Um, you know, anytime we bring in native plants into a home garden, they're going to be like, oh yeah, this <laughs> This is awesome, man. I don't have hardly any competition. There's no density. There's no layers. There's just a bunch of wood mulch around me. And we don't want that. We want plants crammed in there tightly. Mm -hmm. We want them fighting and competing and doing what they were evolved to do. And that will, in, in many instances, or in some instances, at least keep more aggressive species behave. But again, that all starts in researching the plants as best you can before you even bring them into your landscape. Yeah. And that gets to some of the uh, protocols that you put out there under the management um, and the installation and this idea of thinking in succession, in layers, in communities. And, you know, I think uh, this was one of the places where I like made little notes in the margin, Benjamin, and I'm like, well, I think there's actually quite a bit of research that they are not just competing, but they're also collaborating and they are actually supporting each other and they are sharing uh -huh. certain mycorrhiza and, and other uh, benefits with each other. Um, so I'm all for the collaboration and <laughs> community. Uh, <laughs> but in some cases, it is also, um, you know, they are they are competing for resources and they are sharing other resources. And that is why it comes together in these beautiful matrices in, in the, in the wild. Yeah. I, that's, that's really, I don't know. I, I, I almost want to say we have to be really careful because I know we don't, we don't want to think of like our own species as fighting each other. We want to think about ourselves as collaborating and working with one another to a greater good. But I just, don't know how much that really actually happens in the plant world. And I don't want to force our human perspective uh, onto the plant's perspective because I don't think there's anything wrong with plants competing and fighting because it's actually incredibly beneficial for the plants, for the ecosystem, for the for the, for other flora and fauna. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's true. I don't I don't see anything wrong with either one of those perspectives. And I think there's research to back back both of them up. So whether you think about it as competing combating or collaborating and uh, and in community, 
it's the same point, which is that they all live together and they have figured this out. Yes. Yeah. Sounds good to me. And it's an ebbing and a flowing of of up and down and over here and over there. And that is the dynamic that you are asking people to keep in mind and work with in their gardens so that their gardens and the plants they put in them are using the natural tendencies of these plants to their best advantage in the smaller spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's about honoring the plant's culture, so to speak, you know, what they, what they evolved to do and how they can best express themselves. And I love that word dynamic that we've used several times today, because I also want people to know that it's important not to look at a garden as something that stays static, that looks the same year after year after year, because if it, because if it's doing that, if it's being static, it's not achieving anything that, 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 that we want here. Um, as far as a natural landscape yeah. goes. And one of the things I love um, when and it kind of gets back to the competitive or uh, collaborative mindset <laughs> is you give some really good tips for how to deal with your community or with your HOA if you have one that is like hyper vigilant about cultural norms and lawns versus uh pollinator gardens, let's say, um, you give them these like literally numbered points, like keep this in mind, bring this information. And I I love the, the very last one. Um, yeah, no, it's actually the second to last one. Uh, be willing to make compromises. Sometimes a plant really is blocking sight lines or is too aggressive. And sometimes your landscape really is messy. So be open, be calm, be thankful, and and keep making your garden uh, so that it lives well with other humans as well as uh, being this beautiful um, beacon, to use your word, and uh, solace and uh, habitat for wildlife of all kinds, including you and your family. Yeah, there are there are a lot of native plant advocates, or we could say activists out there, who who, who will say, "Well, why can't people just appreciate what I have here?" Um, even though to most people, including me, it just looks like an overgrown mess. There's no intention. There, there's no cues to care. There's no access points. Um, it, it's just it's just not something that's welcoming to people. And unfortunately, the reality is that, yes, we do. There are compromises that we have to make, but that doesn't mean that those compromises are going to inhibit the ecosystem services or function that are that are occurring on your site. So when you're when you're working with an HOA, I think, you know, um, I, I started to tell clients that choosing the plants, writing the down payment check, prepping the site, those are the easy things. Even the installing is the easy thing. The hard thing can be getting approval. And then even, even down the road, sometimes advocating for the space uh, with your neighbors and with any any complaints that come through uh, the system where you're having to talk with uh, city inspectors. And that's that's where the incredible, the biggest opportunity really mm-hmm. is. So you, you've instigated something wonderful. Something wonderful, for sure. And now I want to go to two other words that you've used. One is intention and two is this term cues to care. Remind people or share with people, what do you mean by this? And and how does that manifest it on the ground? And what difference does that make for other people? Cues to care is this very sort of expansive um, idea that we have we have cues in our landscape that show that we are caring for the landscape and that we care 
sort of what our neighbors think, but we, you know, we, we are be, trying to be considerate of our neighbors. And that can mean, again, you're not using aggressive species, species that get really tall right up next to the sidewalk where they might flop over. Um, we're not using species that are going to block the cor corners on a street so people can't see around right. the corner if there's oncoming traffic or a kid on their bike, et cetera, et cetera. So acute care could be having paths going through your space, especially wide paths. I think wide paths are really good, not just a foot, but five or six feet. Um, having sculptures or benches or a picnic table or a bird bath, uh, having a sign that says, a very simple sign that says, this is a native plant habitat landscape that's helping to clean the air, uh, reduce stormwater runoff and support bees and, and, and mm -hmm. birds. Um, those are very simple universal cues to care. Um, but we've also talked about other cues to care today. Again, plant selection and plant arrangement mm -hmm. about repeating masses and drifts and keeping plants lower. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the idea of intention is such a good one to keep in mind because you you know that you're out there trying and you want other people to be able to look at it and say, okay, they didn't just abandon this space. And as you say, like throw up native seeds, you know, and say, good luck, go. Um, but that somebody is doing this on purpose for a reason. And while, you know, not everybody wants to put a sign in their yard, I know it makes a difference on my front, in my front garden, which I have watched people walk around my garden when they have like a stroller or two or three dogs. Um, and I was out there and I sometimes feel badly about that, Benjamin. And then I was out working in the garden one day and I had a man do that where he walked off the sidewalk into the street and around my my garden. And he said, I love walking by your garden so much, but I hate when I think I'm disturbing the spiders that sometimes make their webs across the sidewalk. And he said, so I, so oh, wow. I walk around, so I don't bug them. <laughs> and I thought that oh, is the nicest man. thing that just made me so happy. And I didn't want him to also think that he could like get a spider on the face or his, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> no, this is amazing because I apologize. I apologize to spiders when I yes. accidentally walk through oh, their webs. I feel awful. Awful. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, that interface right there, which is what you were just talking about in, in taking any plan of yours to a community or an HOA group is, is you then engage these other people in this conversation and in these kinds of relationships and that social network theory at work is just, it's a beautiful thing to see. It is. And as and you know, and when you're when you're passionate about the subject too, this is sort of a word of caution here, is that emotions do well, they just do. They they can get really really can get really ratcheted up. Um so it, it, it's, I mean, I was doing an install last year and a neighbors came storming across the street and asked us if we were putting in lawn. And obviously we weren't, we put mulch <laughs> down and we were putting flower plugs out. He was just, you know, being who he was and he was just seething at the mouth. And I was actually a little scared, but I just tried to speak calmly to him. And I invited him to talk more about the landscape, but they just, you know, went, went back across the street and, 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 and they were done with it. But, you know, at any time, you destabilize the status quo. This is going to happen. You're just—it's just—it's just going to be a confrontation. Um, so if you can be as good of an advocate as you can, at least start out with the cues for care. That's a big deal. Um, just being seen in your landscape, tending to it, is a big deal. You know, I don't know. Offering free beer and a bucket on the end of your driveway <laughs> might be helpful. I don't know. So in the end of the book, all readers are going to appreciate this. There is. 
what was it called? A, 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 a candid Q&A. And so Benjamin shares some of the harder uh, questions that he consistently will get along the lines of, uh, but Solidago gives me hay fever. I'm allergic to it. Answer that question. And yeah. then for those readers, <laughs> make sure to read through the candid Q&A because it's good fun. I did. I was so happy my press book. <laughs> I had so much fun. I could do a whole book uh -huh. on that. Uh, so yeah, goldenrod pollen is very heavy. It's very sticky. Uh, it is not windborne. So the only way you're going to be affected by it is if you put your head in there and just rub yourself, you know, rub your face all over in, in the blooms. Uh, what, it, what you're probably looking at is uh, ragweed, which blooms about the same time. And yeah, it sort of looks a little similar, especially to like Canadian goldenrod, but not really. That's that's the windboard stuff. That's the stuff that's causing hay fever. It's the ragweed and not any of the goldenrod species, which are incredibly beneficial to pollinators migrating through and getting ready to overwinter. Is there anything else you would like to add about the joy that you find in this work, Benjamin, and how it has landed with the people you have worked with? I think I think it's I think for me I mean I am a massive introvert and I love being at home but it it is it has allowed me to access and help a community that I never would have been able to before you know through this subject matter and again like as as we talked about way back at the beginning an hour ago um this idea of of social justice for all species in our landscapes about how, how all of these isms are connected you know, to, to me, it's about seeing people, again, just feeling empowered and like they can take action on, on so many things and they can build the community around taking that action. And it's, it's, it's liberating. I think it's, it's just incredible how powerful gardens can be for us uh, when, we, when we let ourselves learn from the plant plants and alongside the plants. Thank you very much for the work that you do and plant more prairie plants and... Thank you for being a guest on Cultivating Place. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Benjamin Vogt is the human behind Monarch Gardens design, consultation, and advocacy based in Lincoln, Nebraska. His design work has been featured in many gardening publications, and his work is widely shared and followed online. His books include A New Garden Ethic, cultivating defiant compassion for an uncertain future, and his most recent, Prairie Up, an introduction to natural garden design. Speaking of plants and place this week, I want to honor the idea behind Monarch Gardens and supporting our migrating butterflies in general, as many of them begin to make their ways north in the spring and then making their way south again at the end of the season for another winter. The importance of our various native milkweeds, the more than 12 native North American Asclepius species, as the only larval food host for the caterpillar or larval stage of the monarch butterflies, is well-researched and promoted in our gardening worlds, especially the importance of locally native, organically grown, not neonicotinoid or otherwise treated, seed-grown milkweeds. But of course, adult migrating monarchs, like all butterflies, 
also need a whole lot of resting and stormy weather shelter in the form of trees or shrub habitat. They also need a whole lot of nectar-producing flowers of all kinds to power their journeys. And they need dry, woody debris as well as shallow water and mud for their puddling mineral-collecting needs. So as you look at the annual and perennial flowering plants you hope to add or to tend in the coming season, think of not only the ones those plants you love, but those which might also serve to attract and support our butterfly friends. In the Xerces Society's wonderfully helpful guide, Gardening for Butterflies, co-authored by Scott Hoffman Black, Brianna Borders, Candace Fallon, Eric Lee Modder, and Matthew Shepard, they summarize some good preliminary considerations. Quote, to attract a variety of butterflies and provide the habitats they need to complete their life cycle, an optimal garden design will include regionally appropriate larval host plants. It will include multiple nectar plant species and sheltered sites that provide safe places to pupate and overwinter or rest. Additionally, good butterfly habitat tends to consist of open, sunny landscapes protected from strong winds. So think of like a meadow in between tall trees on either side. And of course, to sustain both butterflies and other wildlife, these habitats must be free of pesticides. The life cycles of butterflies and moths are intimately connected to the plants that share their home ranges, especially the native plants with which they've co-evolved over thousands of years. So for a diversity of butterflies, a diversity of plants and flowers is key. From seasonal native wildflowers, trying to include flower choices for spring, for summer, and for fall, grasses, which are fabulous shelter and larval food for many moths and butterfly species, vines, especially native ones like our native clematis, our native lonicera or honeysuckle, and our native aristolochias or pipe vines. These are all renowned larval and nectar sources. And of course, we need the flowering woody shrubs and trees to provide a wealth of essential resources, end quote. These authors go on to stress that the native wildflowers of our regions, which are often called forbs by ecologists, are the foundation of every butterfly garden. They can potentially serve as larval hosts, nectar sources, and shelter. The authors elaborate on several plant types to keep in mind for full butterfly support. And remember that while you might not have every one of these in your small urban or suburban garden, look at your neighbors and community green spaces to see if those have some of the elements you need so that you can provide the elements that might not be there. Parks might have the largest of the trees, like oaks and willows, for instance. In your garden's sunniest spots, 
Think flowers, flowers, flowers throughout the season. And not one or two, but three or five or nine of a kind of flower whose colorful masses then become, as Benjamin notes, beacons to migrating butterflies. As butterfly expert Robert Michael Pyle writes in the foreword to Gardening for Butterflies, quote, Perhaps you're beginning with a cottage garden stocked with traditional ornamentals, and you'd like to keep your zinnias. Great! These are loved by painted lady butterflies. But augment these with native plants co-evolved with local insects. Or... Let's say you have a vegetable plot free of weeds and pests, but equally innocent of butterflies, which you miss. Or maybe you share your yard with bluegrass turf and know you could do better. No matter your starting point, he says, just go ahead and start by adding flowering native plants. I'm looking at some new native species for my garden of asters, rudbeckias, echinaceas, penstemons, monardellas, alliums, liatris, and thistles. Yes, native thistles. Birds and butterflies love them. But more on that in another Speaking of Plants. Join us again next week when we stay with the remarkable plants people of the American Midwest in conversation with an iconic prairie plantsman, Roy Diblick, whose plants and planting plans complete the gorgeous designs of gardens and gardeners far and wide, including the Lurie Garden in Chicago. Roy is renowned for his beautiful, diverse, and ecologically beneficial plant-driven landscapes. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.